This is Eric Todd on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Aram Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nan. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a fantastic show today. We're going to be talking about a lot of critical items right now. One of the things we're going to talk about is an interview that I did recently on uh, AJ Plus, Al Jazeera Plus, about Palestinian political prisoners. There's actually quite a bit going on right now with Palestinian political prisoners. We're going to kind of review that a little bit. And of course, you know, this is the meeting of the United Nations General Assembly, and we can't not talk about the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's kind of crazy presentation, as usual, not even mentioning the question of Palestine, Palestinians, anything to do with Palestine, completely erasing anything having to do with Palestine at the General Assembly. We'll talk about that. And Jamal, we're going to talk a little bit about the 60-minute interview with Israeli pilots. Do we call this whitewashing, greenwashing? I don't know what to call it, but it seems like 60 minutes. Wanna, I call it just poor journalism because uh, 60-minute uh, host did not, did not have a follow-up question to some of the comments what no. we're talking about. Why don't you just be a mouthpiece for the Israeli military, CBS, 60 minutes? But we'll talk about that. But before we get to that, we're going to have a really great kind of interview that you did with the virtuoso Palestinian Arab uh, violinist George Leman. He's going to be featured on a multimedia theatrical travelogue called Oriental Meets Occidental on October 20th to 22nd at the Dan Mission Theater in San Francisco. What an incredible musician, Jamal. Well, we're going to give you all listeners and viewers a, a taste of this concert because uh, George will be right here shortly and he'll hopefully perform some of the pieces. Uh, I hope he does. They will be presenting I hope so. the concert. So uh, let's, let's uh, watch the interview. Arabic violin virtuoso George Lamam has a repertoire spanning a wide range of Arabic music from classical to contemporary songs. Over his career, he has performed with most well-known singers throughout the Middle East. He tours internationally and has recorded numerous CDs. On October 20th to 22nd at the Dance Mission Theater in San Francisco, George will be featured in the multimedia theatrical travelogue. The performance takes you on his musical journey as an Arab immigrant. A rich story unfolds through music as well as dance and poetry. Each destination adds a new layer of spice and complexity to his artistry. We're honored to have George in the studio and joining us also his wife, Jeanette, and his uh, theater writer, and Galjur. Welcome all to Arab Talk, uh, Jeanette, and uh, also, of course, George and uh, Anne. Thank you Thank for, you having, for us. having us. So I, I just want to start by asking you about this musical journey because uh, it sounds like you're a musical autobi uh, autobiography. Talk about this. The whole idea of, uh, of, of this uh, show came from uh, applying for San Francisco a Grant of the Arts. And uh, so when we were at it, so then we, we sat down uh, and 
decided what I want to do. So the best way to do it is to have the story, my journey with the music from uh, from Beirut to San Francisco. And uh, we're still working on it and the details uh, until now. And um, so it's t telling the story of how I grew up being as become, became, uh, grew up in Lebanon as a refugee, Palestinian refugee, and went from uh, being in Lebanon, have a chance to move to the Gulf region, to United Arab Emirates, and from there to Miami. From Miami, I came to San Francisco and settled here in San Francisco. So uh, my music changed from everywhere I went. Uh, the style of it and meeting different musicians from different parts of the world, uh, so this will be the, will be the story telling it and in musical and also in poetry and uh, and reading uh, the story of uh, of my my life and my my movement in, in, with my career and uh, and and my life. So now, when you talk about Palestinian refugee, of course you were born in Lebanon, but I remember talking to you before once, and then at one point. You haven't been to Palestine, and then you went to Palestine. How how did how, how did that go for you? It was very very emotional to go back to the to the route where my family came from, because I didn't have the chance until a younger age, because of of course my status uh, and my um, I wouldn't be able to go. Uh, but with my American passport, I was able to go and uh, and visit uh, the beautiful land my my parents came from. Did you get to see where did they live? I, I did experience actually. Um, maybe uh, maybe Jeanette can tell you that story because it's, it's very emotional. Because in Haifa, which is where my parents were were born, I was in a cruise ship and it stopped in Ashdod, and and me and uh, Jeanette we said, let's see if there is anybody from my family left there. <laughs> uh, it didn't take me much actually. <laughs> Do we want to well, his father story? before we left, his father gave us the street address in Haifa where they lived. So once we were in Haifa, we had a cab driver, and because he was uh, a Russian Jew who immigrated to Palestine in 1951, he remembered the name of the street because the na street names have been changed from Arabic to Hebrew. So right. had we not just by chance had this cab driver, we would never have found the street. So he uh, encouraged us to ask around for family you know and so George did we just he'd be shouting to people up in their balconies or whatever and people said go see what was his name Abu one of the Abus <laughs> and he said he's always on the corner he's always on the corner well he wasn't on the corner so George just knocks on the door of the I house <laughs> and in come on in here's the tea here's the dates and they begin <laughs> to try to connect to the Lamam family well in a very short period of time, although it took some levels, go to the shop and unlock this, lock that. Ended up, this man said, "Come to, you have to see my mother. You have to meet my mother. So we walked to his mother's flat, and his mother was George's father's first cousin. Their fathers wow. were brothers. Mm -hmm. And how, how did you feel, George? I mean, <laughs> I know it's an emotional feeling. Yeah, were you uh, shocked or... When I was shocked, and also him. right away I called my father, who was um, who was still with us, and he said, "Of course, yeah, I I, I know her. I grew up uh, playing on the streets with her. <laughs> she was like ninety two, right? Ninety two, yeah. and she remembered George's father. Yeah, they were first cousins. I took pictures and everything, and I sent it to my dad, and yeah, so that that was amazing, amazing feelings to find somebody still still live there." <laughs> 
Yeah, it must have been a, a, an emotional, I would say. Very, very emotional, yes. Very emotional. Did you feel, I mean, I would say it's more like a roller coaster, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. also, I, you know, when I, I grow up as a refugee in Lebanon, you don't have a, any, any chance to go and visit. And um, I felt I did, uh, I did fair, uh, like, uh, favor to my parents by just going there because they never went back. And the post, uh, both of them are gone now. Um, so, so I felt a connection. So when we talk about, of course, this is the connection that came later on in life. That's your roots. You know, you started there, but then that, that is the influence from Lebanon and then coming to, to the United States and they, of course, performing in the Gulf. So uh, for that journey, and I mean, you have to create... I mean, you're the theater, theatrical writer. How do you put that into theater? You know, it's e to me, maybe it's easier to, to write it down, but how do you deliver it to the audience to tell that story? Well, I felt quite a responsibility on this one, Jamal. Uh, so first of all, it's a musical journey. So the text, the narration provides context for each place that George uh, lives in, from Beirut to Dubai, uh, Miami, and then San Francisco. So it, it's transition, and it also provides context. And also you'll see how he's going to pick up each of these musical influences as he moves from city to city. And so that's all the text does. This is a musical journey. And the music and the power of the music speaks for itself. So when we talk about the power of music and the influence, um, talk, talk a little bit about how each, uh, should I say, because this is a travelogue, you call it travel, so how about each stop in your life or each home in your life influence your music when we talk about Lebanon, uh, the Gulf, the United States, and, and so on. How did that alter or improve your musical uh, career? Uh, growing up in Lebanon, Lebanese have different styles than the Gulf region, which is, we call it Khaliji, Khaliji region. The, the, the phrases, the rhythm, and the change. So I actually, when... When I growing up in a, uh, in a music family, my father was a movie producer, my mother was a singer, so uh, actually all my brothers are musicians too. Uh, so growing up listening to Levantine area, uh, Levantine area of uh, of the music there is, as as you know, it's different than the the Gulf region. So uh, growing up in Lebanon, I absorbed that style of music. Mostly influenced me. So I grew up actually playing classical Arabic music from Egypt and and Lebanon, as you know, the legend uh, Muhammad Abu Habib, Mkaltoum, and and others, Farid Atrash. Uh, so this is the way actually I grew up with the music. Moving to United Arab Emirates, where where actually I have the chance to start my music career there and uh, learning violin, uh, influenced me to the style of the Khaliji music. Uh, actually, I played uh, two years with 
kind of they say the national orchestra of Dubai. So we, I played with them, um, with local singers from there, which they have the Khalija style. It, it gives me the ability to learn uh, this different style of music. And actually, I created my own band in uh, in Dubai called the Golden Stars Band. <laughs> we started playing in, in every, as you know, in, uh, in Dubai those days in the seventies, every everything, all the entertainment was in five stars hotels be huge nightclubs and you play there so uh, from age 16 i started performing created my own after two years playing with the national orchestra i created my own band and start playing music i get a lot of experience by playing that and i get a chance to move from there to come to to miami where i met also some uh, arab musicians there and uh, Specifically, actually, from the uh, Arabic church in Miami. There was Arabic church, uh, it was um, a canoe player and a singer from Aleppo, where they really kept the tradition of the Arabic music going. I was very happy to meet them because they helped me a lot, actually, start my career in the United States, in a way, so introduced me to the community. We started actually playing more classical Arabic music there because everybody wants to hear that style in the diaspora. And after that, I get opportunity to come to San Francisco, where uh, the, the diversity here is huge. I start thinking about um, learning other styles of music by, by start uh, being invited to different groups to to play with, and uh, uh, met Latinos, met uh, even my producer uh, who is married to amazing uh, Pakistani singer Rifa Sultana. Um, met Latinos in Avias where our where it's going to um, also be in the show. So all my career is, is putting all the what happened in in my career in in this show and the styles of changing changing the music from everywhere I went. So get influenced. And Jeanette, how did you how did you join that journey? How did you meet George? Uh, well. I met George through music, actually. I'm a, a musician, and I also had a passion before I met George for Arabic culture, both music and dance. Even I studied some interest, uh, some instruments, uh, studied the music theory of Arabic music. And uh, a friend of mine said, there's some new musicians that came to the East Bay um, in this Arabic nightclub, so I went there with them. And that's when I met George. He, he newly arrived. Uh, he was on contract. And right away, I knew he, he had a special talent, a special skill for uh, communing to all of us through music. It was quite extraordinary. I remember talking to you before, George, uh, when you had uh, the Navia with you um, and performed on the show. Uh, but you also played outside this country. You went to Latin America. Yeah, I, I got opportunity to uh, tour with them. Um, Eddie, which is going to be in my show, he plays an instrument called charingo. He's from Bolivia. Mm -hmm. uh, and they own actually uh, a place here, uh, which is we do live music in their city called Peña Pachamama. Uh, I start actually playing, with, started doing my own shows there, but then I start playing with them little by little, they said, oh, I can't play with us. And I start liking playing Latin music. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I recorded with them. One of the albums were nom nominated for uh, a Grammy. Latin Grammy. Uh, Latin Grammy, yeah. Uh, folkloric Latin Grammy. And 
And I said, the, 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 uh, the Minister of Culture in Bolivia invited us to, to go on a tour. You want to come with us? <laughs> Tell them, of course, I would love to. It was amazing to we went to different uh, six different cities in Bolivia, and um, and Edenavia is so well known there. Uh, uh, so we got so much recognition, and I love being in Bolivia. Um, we did. The, I'll tell you, like we did maybe twenty eight uh, TV interviews <laughs> before and after the shows, and the media was a big part of it too. So. Going to Latin America was quite an experience. Well, that was my next question, because I feel that uh, the music blends well with uh, Arabic music, you know. Well, if you take the... Uh, especially uh, Gabriel studied in Spain and the influence of the flamenco music. Um, Arabs being in Spain for 800 years, and this brought also the influence. Um, but also, I I like it because I wanted also to do something different with my career. I wanted to try something, ex explore different styles of music. And um, as you hear in my recording, there's actually that that thing. I I thought to myself, I want to record something. I have to have my signature, uh, which is mixture of 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 the two cultures together, creating my own sound step away from kind of the classic Arabic I grew up with, but in the meantime, it's still there, and uh, and you can hear it uh, through my recordings. You should go next to Chile. Uh, <laughs> I was, like, surprised, like, many years ago, that um, Chile, there is probably 400,000 Palestinians who live in Chile. Actually... And most of them come from one little village, which is uh, Bejala, and Bejala is next to Bethlehem. And, well, we don't have 400,000 Palestinians living in Bejala. We never had that. And everyone, because I've had interaction with a lot of people from Chile in different conferences, and, and, and I will ask the first person, oh, I'm from Chile, where, are you from? where, where did your parents come from? And they'll say, Bejala, the next one, Bejala. And, and it's, I, actually, I it's, funny it's because amazing for you to go there and perform. Yeah, actually, it's funny because a couple of years ago, there's this Chilean guy who, who contacted me. He's Palestinian, born in Chile, and he's a keyboardist player. He said, I just moved to the Bay Area and uh, I've heard about you. I want to meet you and if there is an opportunity to play together. And I'm, I met with him. He doesn't speak any Arabic, no. <laughs> but he plays those classic Arabic pieces. I was mesmerized by him. Uh, his name is Karim Pshara. He's actually from Chile, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's probably your, your next, part of, uh, next part of your journey. I, you know, so... Uh, the show again is uh, on October twentieth, twenty first, and twenty uh, second. It's a, it's a matinee. Where can people buy tickets for the show? Uh, the tickets can be purchased at dancemissiontheater.org. They have a, a, um, a ticketing portal there. I think that's yeah, that's where you get them. Well, before I ask you, I, I want I want to end the show by having you. Take us into a journey uh, with uh, M. Kalthum, uh, but uh, first tell us what's next. I know it's hard to ask people when they have a big event coming. What do you feel like, where is the next journey going to be? Well, I'm, I'm hoping actually maybe to take uh, this show on the road 
mm. and do it in different uh, places in the United States. Um, hopefully, we can find sponsors because you know this is a lot uh, to put together. Uh, so we're just gonna take it step by step. We'll see. But I'm always gonna be and actually, yeah, talking about music. It's gonna be four uh, new compositions gonna be played on this show, which is represent this movement of, of uh, where I moved from. Uh, and will be uh, soon. Will be a CD. Will be on the CD released. Hopefully, maybe before the end of the year or beginning of uh, 2024, will be a new album coming out. So take us home. All right. <laughs> The show is going to be in the Mission, 10th Street, October 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Bravo. Again, the, the show, don't miss the show. Go uh, online again. What's the site? DanceMissionTheater.org. DanceMissionTheater.org. Also, October... you can get tickets at Eventbrite. That's the okay. ticketing portal. Eventbrite. October 20th, 21st, and 22nd in San Francisco at the Mission Dance Theater. Jeanette, Anne, and of course, George. Thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. That's the face and the voice of virtuoso violinist, incredible Georges Lamain, who's going to be featured at a multimedia theatrical travelogue called Oriental Meets Occidental on October 20th to 22nd at Dance Mission Theater in San Francisco. What an incredible musician, Jamal. What, a, what an incredible person. Well, we encourage everyone to go to that event. We've announced it uh, several times during the interview. And so hopefully you'll, uh, I mean, especially now people are going out just, you know, they, they're kind of tired of the lockdown, the COVID lockdown. So uh, hopefully uh, everyone would go out there. So uh, moving on just to your interview, because I want to ask you about this, uh, AJ Plus, that's Al Jazeera Plus interviewed you about Palestinian prisoners and uh, and the hunger strikes. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah Jamal, it's, uh, I mean, and I think as many of our listeners and viewers know, there are over 5,000 men, women, and children who are imprisoned in, in the Israeli military prison complex. They're subjected to harsh interrogations like torture, 
They're denied access to attorneys. They're denied access to their families. They're denied access to any kind of basic rights that uh, prisoners are entitled to under international law. And they continue to be kind of um, put in these awful situations. And there's a long history of Palestinian prisoners engaging in hunger strikes, as you know, um, to to kind of confront the you know horrific uh, conditions under which they they suffer. And you know, many Palestinian prisoners, Jamal, as, as we know, are are detained indefinitely without ever being charged, ever noticing their charges. And they just are detained for months, years, and decades at a time. So what typically happens is that in order to confront the situation, they go on hunger strike. So right now, there's about a thousand Palestinian prisoners that are going on a hunger strike to protest the awful conditions that they're put under under the uh, Israeli military establishment. The, the conditions are pretty bad, Jamal. Let's just say this, that they are denied access to their families. They're put under these harsh conditions, which are tantamount to torture, and they are not being allowed to see the charges. I mean, this is the fundamental thing that uh, any prisoner uh, is granted. They need to know what they're charged with, and they are denied that as well as access to an attorney. Well, enough is enough. And, you know, just to remind our listeners, you know, Adnan in May of 2023 died uh, from a hunger strike. Uh, this Palestinian prisoner died from a hunger strike under Israeli uh, prison uh, conditions. And so this is no joke. This is a serious problem. It's being done at this time to call for worldwide attention to the plight of the uh, Palestinian prisoners. The one thing that I do want to say just quickly about this, and I said this in my interview on Al Jazeera Plus, is that you have a system of control with the occupation in general for all Palestinians, right? That system of control gets transplanted and turbocharged within the prison system. So the matrix of control, controlling people physically, emotionally, geographically, psychologically, uh, is just turbocharged in the Palestinian uh, among Palestinian prisoners under their Israeli captors. So the occupation goes from outside prison to a intense and more virulent and more disturbing form of it uh, inside the prison. It's just a another form of the occupation, Jamal, being extended from outside to inside the prison uh, experience for Palestinian prisoners. And uh, according to some reports, at the end of June 2023, just uh, Israel... Uh, was holding 4,499 Palestinians in detention or or prison on what it defines security grounds. And that's exactly what you're talking about. They're not granted any legal representation. They don't know. They can't uh, have access to the witnesses that who have accused them of these so-called uh, security, security grounds. I want to ask you one more question quickly about this. What is, I mean, we know about the physical uh, toll that uh, inflicts on the prisoners, what's the psychological uh, torture part of it? Yeah, well, that's a really important point. And most people most people are mis- misunderstand the devastating impact of the prison experience for for prisoners, especially Palestinian prisoners. They think it's the physical toll, which is devastating. 
uh, because people do have long life, long, you know, long-term physical uh, manifestations that are detrimental to health. But what people typically neglect are the psychological or traumatic impact on Palestinian prisoners who are isolated from their families, who are typically isolated from one another, who do not have access to the outside world and are treated uh, inhumanely in such a way that is unlike any other prison experience. And what, what I'll say, Jamal, is that the Israeli prison experience makes Guantanamo Bay look like uh, like summer camp. And, and uh, the impact on Palestinian prisoners is lifelong in terms of the psychological impact, the insomnia, the difficulty sleeping for the rest of their lives, the depression, the anxiety, the traumatic reliving of the experience in the uh, prison in the in prison is just it's lifelong and it's devastating. Moving on to uh, our next story, Jess. Uh, everyone all remembers. The only, the only thing missing is the graphic, right? The only thing missing is the graphic of the bar. Yeah, well, I was going to mention, people probably last remember when he went on the podium and and had his show and tell the graphic of the bomb about uh, uh, Iran's so-called yeah. nuclear bomb. And that was how many years ago uh, that this happened? Uh, and he was saying yeah. Iran's going to have a Four nuclear bomb like maybe. tomorrow, you know, or the day. In two weeks. In two weeks. So anyways, so this time, this time uh, is his prop, uh, his prop was a map that claimed to depict to depict to depict Israel uh, in 1948. The map go gave all of the land between the river and the sea to to Israel. So Net Netanyahu's map that he showed at the UN uh, General Assembly wiped away uh, Palestinians, wiped away Palestine, wiped away Palestinian rights to the land and the historical ge geographical reality. And uh, he went on, of course, uh, in his uh, monologue, which uh, I want to point out because people see all the pictures of him showing the map, but they don't show a different angle, which I posted on Twitter for those who are interested to go to my Twitter yeah. account, Jamal Dejani. And they'll see that the room is like 80% empty. Empty, right? Empty, no yeah, to yeah. So that's what I kind know. of irritating again, the failure of uh, uh, mainstream media to show media. that that most of the uh, delegates boycotted his presentation, and but anyway, uh, you know, here here we go again, as they say every time. So uh, what I say, this was a good presentation as far as I'm concerned, because perhaps. At the 23rd hour, it will be a wake-up call to those who drank the cool aid of Oslo and the, the so-called uh, two-state solution. That's exactly right, Jamal. I think that's a really good point. Because the, the Hasbaristas wanted to twist what was happening in New York. They failed to, the mainstream media failed to point out the hundreds, if not thousands of people that were protesting. Netanyahu at the United Nations in New York. He chose to talk about Saudi Arabia and this rapprochement with Saudi Arabia and the Arab world, completely neglecting, negating, and being in denial about the question of Palestine. The, the, the media coverage has been, as usual, Jamal, pretty embarrassing. It seems like, and this gets to our next topic about the you know, CBS uh, 60 Minutes interview with Israeli pilots, 
it's the mainstream media becomes a mouthpiece, becomes just an extension of the Israeli Hasbarista, and really missing the boat on these really important uh, kind of contextual and reality-based things about what's happening in the apartheid state right now. To put this into context, just so uh, uh, when you talk about 60 Minutes, this is a 60 Minutes segment. Uh, they've had, uh, I believe, uh, four Israeli pilots uh, with uh, Leslie Stoll uh, reporting on Israel, and uh, and 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 these are Israeli helicopter pilots who shoot missiles into Palestinian homes, killing children, uh, and now they're talking about moral values, right? And here is the interesting part. One of the pilots, uh, Shira Etting, her name I think is Shira Etting, and she says, and I'm quoting here, I was a combat heli helicopter pilot. If you want pilots to be able to fly and shoot bombs and missiles into houses, knowing they might be killing children, they must have the strongest confidence in the people making those uh, decisions. And of course, that's what I said about the... right bad or poor journalism, uh, Stoll did not ask a follow-up question. She did not push back against the claim that killing Palestinian children just is a moral action. I mean, I mean, think, just like you have to watch that segment. I had to watch that segment 10 times and, and, and oh. she just, just says it casually, you know, like really, really disturbing. Yeah. No, it was, it was completely disturbing. Leslie Stahl has been a shell for the Israeli apartheid government for years, Jamal. And 60 Minutes likes to brand itself as this, you know, independent, cutting-edge, you know, investigative journalism. But when it comes to the military and the Israeli military and the immoral, illegal crimes they've committed against Palestinian civilians, it never gets mentioned. How many wars in Gaza? How many deaths of Palestinian children? And you're right, Jamal. Leslie Stahl completely forgets. Well, I don't think she forgets. She completely ignores and does not push back on this helicopter pilot who admits that they fire missiles into buildings that could kill children and women. These pilots have killed hundreds of children in Gaza in recent years by firing missiles at apartment buildings, at residential areas, dropping bombs on residential areas, numerous uh, human rights, international human rights organizations have called these actions war crimes. They've, they've, they've been called That's as right. war crimes. One, uh, uh, one pilot, I remember this, uh, I don't know how long ago, but uh, pilot Jonathan Shapira stopped flying such right. missions because his Air Force commander told him that Israel would never employed the same policy of targeted assassinations, and that's what Israel puts it under, targeted assassinations, if Jewish civilians were in the apartment buildings. Because that's the cover. They always say, oh, we're going after Hamas leaders and, and so forth, knowingly that the apartment building is full of children, women, elderly, and so forth, and yet they shoot those missiles on them. And, and if you follow the rest of the interview, she had asked one question, brief question about the occupation, and uh, which, uh, you know, just focused on the demands of the protesters, basically. Uh, Jamal, you know, like, why are you know what the real war crime is? Leslie Stahl is the war crime. Her journalism 
Lack of journalistic integrity is the war crime, Jamal. Giving voice to these individuals without questioning them and challenging them, that's the war crime. It's a well, think about war. it. It was actually this uh, episode of uh, 60 Minutes had two stories. One story was about Ukraine and uh, the heroic action of the Ukrainian people defending themselves uh, uh, against Russian occupation. The next wow. story, which should have been about Palestinian, Israeli occupation of Palestine and Palestinians defending themselves against the occupation, it was about the moral, moral decision of these pilots like, oh, they, because they don't, they don't have confidence in their government, but they don't have a pro problem killing, killing children. Palestinian children if they had confidence in the government. Yeah, well, this this the moral bankruptcy of 60 Minutes is put on full display, Jamal. And that juxtaposition, as you said, is even more painful. That some people are allowed to fight against the occupation of their land, but others are not. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thank you.